It's Depression Mode. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. I was talking to this guy, John, a while back. Not me, different John. This John is a first-year college student, and before he ever got to college, he became a little bit famous. See, John was the fastest in the world at typing on what's called the Dvorak keyboard. It's an alternative to the traditional QWERTY keyboard. John started typing for speed and accuracy when he was in elementary school, and by the time he was like 15, 16 years old, he was typing 210 words per minute on a Dvorak, 160 words per minute on the QWERTY keyboard. How could John achieve this at such a young age? How could he muster the sustained concentration to be so obsessively dedicated? Well, that's what I asked him. You know what he said? ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. Yeah, you know, the condition a lot of people associate with not being able to concentrate. The one with attention deficit, right there in the title. First two words of the title. John says concentrating on the things he was obsessed with was actually super easy. It's all the other things he was supposed to be also concentrating on that kind of fell by the wayside as he became a typing god. Neglecting those other areas became kind of a problem, really. John finally got diagnosed, got treated, and he's really happy that he did. He's a more well-rounded person now. He's taking Latin in college. Can't type quite as fast, but that's okay. And I didn't know ADHD could work that way. So ADHD is something that I was wrong about. Maybe you were too. John is not on the show this week, but Sarah Marshall is. Sarah is the co-creator and host of the podcast You're Wrong About. Her former co-creator and co-host Michael Hobbs left the show last year. On You're Wrong About, Sarah and her guests look at big stories from fairly recent history, and she looks at the ways they were misunderstood. Princess Diana's death, Tom Cruise in that Oprah appearance, Y2K, even that thing a few years ago where people were spotting scary clowns in the woods all over the place. It turns out society's view of a lot of these events is shaped and warped by biases and assumptions. So she kind of picks the story apart, dismantles it, deconstructs it. Much like our understanding of what's true and not true about ADHD, which Sarah has also been dealing with her whole life. So I think I must have been 11 or maybe 12. I'm pretty sure I was 11 when I was evaluated and diagnosed. And that was when I first heard of the concept. So it would have been 1999 or 2000. And it was, I mean, I don't think I really had a great understanding of it as a kid. And I feel like our understanding of it has progressed a lot since then. And I think I, you know, I and pop culture generally, I think understood it as something that made kids Uh, hyperactive, which certainly was, you know, was one of the behaviors that I had. And so was it at that age, was it truly a disorder in your life in that it was creating problems with functioning of your life? It's a great question. I mean, I think that kids are asked to do a really unreasonable amount of work. And I think that I as a kid who was regarded by my family as smart, therefore there was a, a higher bar of expectation for me than for probably the average child in America. And so I think, I mean, t- I think it was hard for me to understand the diagnosis for a long time because I saw it as basically being told like, oh, like you can't succeed at this level 
that seems kind of unreasonable for any child because you have because you're like this, because your brain is like this. And I think I and there was, a you know, a lot of rhetoric at the time about this being something that kids were being overdiagnosed as, which I really haven't revisited since then. But I think at that age, I was like, yeah, I was really leaning into the concept of like, I'm basically fine. And this is another thing that is sort of just added to the list of ways that I'm not put together quite correctly. And I would just like to not think about it. And so I think it was really only in adulthood. And I kind of, I smarter people have talked about this elsewhere, but I think that there was kind of a bump in women receiving ADHD diagnoses after the pandemic, because I think that the coping strategies that you can build up when life is, you know, doesn't have a giant fire raging inside of it, like you lose those and then you really have to deal with it. So I think it, it was, you know, I had kind of a 20 year gap of being in denial, I think. Was it ADD when you were diagnosed with it? Yeah, it was. Okay. Was it also, it was a two separate diagnoses, as I recall. So were you also diagnosed with a hyperactivity disorder? I was only diagnosed with ADD. Yeah, I was, I remember being a, a hyper kid, but it was the, the focus was very much on like, I mean, really like I associate it very strongly with homework. And I thought of it as like, I was prescribed these pills and they were like homework pills and they allowed me to do homework. <laughs> what were you like before and after those pills? Hmm. Well, I mean, I, gosh, what was I like as a tween? I was like very dramatic. I was a twirler. I passionate, lots of special interests. I also like, if I was into something, I could focus on it, but it had to be by choice. I drew a lot. I wrote a lot. I didn't really, I had a hard time relating socially, but I, I wasn't like a sort of a serious adult like kid. I wasn't an old soul. I was I was definitely a young soul. This was before the treatment or after the treatment? This is before. Yeah. And okay. I mean, the thing about the treatment is that it was fairly brief because I was on Ritalin for probably three months or something like that. And there was, I don't remember the feeling of it as much as I remember the way that my mom loved it and talked about it longingly after the fact. And the kind of constant battle in our lives was that like, I needed to be doing homework, I needed to come home, and I needed to sit down and do homework. And I have been locked in that battle ever since I think now with myself, this idea of like, feeling bad for not doing something the way I know I'm supposed to do it, and then feeling worse, and it becoming harder to do than it was already, because it's already hard to do. And so it, I think that I... I wanted to go off medication after a few months, and my parents agreed to that because what I said was that it made me feel like there was something wrong with me. I didn't like having to take a pill at school. You had to go to the nurse's office to do it. And then to circumvent that, my mom would like hide it in my food, but then like that felt weird. Like the whole thing felt like in your lunch? Illicit. Yeah. Like she would put like a pudding in like a little Tupperware and then like put a Ritalin in the pudding. <laughs> so. Yes, we were doing crimes. But I, I think I also felt and probably still feel like this is still part of my difficulty around a lot of stuff, this feeling of why can't you love me when I'm not doing work the way you want me to do it? Or why can't you love me if I'm working at my own pace? And it felt like it was basically, I, I think I felt afraid that I was being, that I was becoming another child. And I, I didn't want to be that person. And I still have, I think I'm still struggling with that. I think 20 years later, I feel like, gosh, I'm not medicated. 
I'm really playing on hard mode. Like, I really struggle with just like, where are my keys? What uh-huh. did I just decide I had to do? Like, where, <laughs> what am I doing today? And it would be, I feel like it would be so much easier if I just like, this is kind of the the thicket that I'm in right now uh, that maybe this will like help me make some progress in. But I think I still feel this feeling of why should I make it easier for people to love me? They should be forced to accept me the way that I am, which is nuts because it doesn't, it means I don't think about my quality of life. So that's a big thought swirl to have when looking for your keys. I know. (laughs) (laughs) And then they're in your hand. So (laughs) it doesn't make them any easier to find, I would think. Well, it, it's interesting to me, I, as a former kid and the father of three kids, two of them are grown mm-hmm. now, but watching kind of the, especially I think as a parent, watching those kids go through school and where they struggle and, and where they, they don't. And a lot of the behavioral stuff is built on what are they doing that makes the teacher's life smoother? And mm. then that is right. recognized as being good behavior and where where things are more complicated, then that's there's a, a sort of value judgment in the negative to that. When in mm-hmm. fact you you just have a, a whole bunch of individuals and you know whose brains and behaviors inevitably end up being different. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's like it it still feels bad to me to prioritize sort of the idea that the child who is able to sit in a chair for nine hours on a nice day at a young age and focus on what they're told to do. Like, I don't think that's good. I think that kid is going to grow up to be a potential fascist. (laughs) Like, sorry if your kid is well-behaved, but I don't trust them. Like the ability to listen to what any adult tells you to do and then do it. Like, I don't think that's the ideal for children. Um, And it also probably would be better if like, Anyone but children was doing anything to make teachers' lives better. That would be good, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting that you had this sense of like, okay, should I be doing homework more? Should I be doing homework in a different way? Should I be better about doing homework? And then you grow up and become a journalist. (laughs) And in writing, as a a writer, you get the gift of I should be studying more all Mm -hmm. the time. It's interesting that that was an issue that you struggled with and then became sort of central to your profession and the work that you've done within that profession. Yeah. I mean, it it's funny because I think one of the things that I remember hearing a lot when I was growing up was, you know, if you can focus on this other thing you're doing, why can't you focus on this? It's like the attention equivalent of eat this, not that. Right. Remember when that book was everywhere? <laughs> yeah. And... And I feel, I mean, and even, and then as now, it's clear to me that like the, the difficulty of the work is defined largely by whether I've chosen it for myself or whether I see value in it. And um, it's, I mean, gosh, like not to stick to a vendetta for this whole conversation, but I do feel like so much of what kids are asked to do in school are like obvious exercises in running down the clock. And like <laughs> a lot of them know that. <laughs> Yeah, I've I've told my kids that if any teacher hands you a word search, bring it home and I'll do your word search because I don't <laughs> want you doing a fucking word search. Right. Like what are you going to learn from a word search? When in adult life do you ever search for words? It's not a thing. <laughs> yeah, they're easy to find. They're all over the place. They're you in a dictionary in order. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Alphabetized. <even. laughs> I mean, do you do you make a connection between this 
this long ago ADD diagnosis, what would today be an ADHD diagnosis, mm-hmm. and the work that you do, especially with your wrong about, where you will get captivated by a topic like Tanya Harding or the satanic yeah. panic and go after that just really laser focused horse blinders. Mm. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, I think I I love the act of research. I think it's and it's clearly something that a lot of people like because all the sort of radicalized QAnon people love to think of what they're doing as research and they've turned research into a sort of group activity that they get to do. So like, it's fun. Like we like being detectives. A lot of us do humans. So I, I, it definitely is, you know, an exercise in, I, you know, I think I've been unbelievably lucky enough to sort of take my existing skill set and build a career around that. And I think that's what these shows are. And I also think that I'm really, you know, famously, I am obsessed with maligned women. And that has has been true for a long time. I think the show kind of got its legs under it by telling these, you know, stories about people like Tanya Harding and Amy Fisher, who just were completely written off in the press in the time that they became notorious as, you know, barely human, essentially. And I think also there's like, I think I've always sort of carried with me the feeling of being judged as if I am failing to do something that I could do, but I'm choosing not to do for some reason, when in fact, I just can't. Like, I can't do it. I didn't know I was supposed to do it. I don't know how to do it. I don't understand the situation enough to even contemplate a response or just the the way that my wiring works just sort of precludes that. And I think I'm often drawn to figures who were, you know, attacked in the press partly because they failed to act in a way that people wanted them to and were read as having done the wrong thing on purpose, even though they suffered the most from the outcome. Why is it those stories that resonate the most with you? Gosh, I mean, I I don't know. They just, they have for a long time. I think I... Uh, you know, growing up feeling like I had a hard time understanding social rules and communicating and sort of making friends. I think any kind of fame or media attention feels like a larger scale version of a schoolyard. Um, mm. So, right. Yeah. I mean, and just any, whether we're doing it through a screen or not, I think there's just you know, I think often of the opening scene in Carrie where Carrie gets her period in the showers at school and doesn't know what's happening because she has a scary holy roller mom and the other girls like all turn on her and, and attack and, you know, start throwing tampons at her. And, um, you know, I grew up, my parents had chickens when I was growing up. We always had chickens and it's just common knowledge that if you have chickens, there's going to be a pecking odor and one of the chickens is going to get picked on by all the other chickens. So I just, yeah, I think I really zero in on people who I see as the lowest chicken. (laughs) (laughs) The most pecked upon chicken. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think uh, Meryl Streep was giving a commencement address at Yale, and she told everybody, remember, life is not like college. It's much more like high school. (laughs) (laughs) Just ahead, Sarah couldn't concentrate on everything. But she could concentrate a lot on Tanya Harding.
back with Sarah Marshall of the You're Wrong About podcast. Sarah says one of the iconic people that she got really interested in and found out that we were wrong about was Olympic figure skater Tanya Harding. Harding became famous and infamous when people associated with her husband attacked Harding's rival, Nancy Kerrigan, in 1994. So I first started thinking about Tanya Harding actually in 2010, which is when I started my MFA and I went to Portland State. And I had grown up in Portland and I think almost everybody in my cohort had just moved to town from somewhere else in the country and were kind of getting a crash course in the city. And it was like, this was the time of Portlandia. Portland was kind of like relatively new to being relevant. And I remember having this feeling of like, well, look, if you're going to come learn to be a writer in my city then like I want people to learn about like what to me kind of what Oregon is, what Portland is. And I wrote this little piece to read at the MFA reading series about like, here are some famous Portlanders. And I put D.B. Cooper on there, even though we have no idea who he was or where he was from because he boarded his flight in Portland. So he's ours. (laughs) And it was, you know, it was a list of a few people and Tanya Harding was the one who stuck with me. I remember just saying, you know, Tanya Harding is a Portlander. Tanya Harding was the first reason that the national media came to Portland and, you know, as far as anyone could remember in in the 90s. And it was just bizarre for us to have this kind of attention on anything we were doing. And then thinking about her and thinking of her as someone who had loomed large in my childhood because I was sort of like just starting to pay attention to the world when she became the subject of the entire world's attention for about six weeks in 1994. The more I looked at it, the more I was like, I think I felt, you know, the way that like Kevin Costner feels in JFK, where you're like, oh my God, like (laughs) just rewind the footage, watch it again. I can see what's happening. Can they not see what's happening? Was that because, it's like you wrote a little thing for your MFA program in which she was one ingredient, but were you... Did you then just, what, recreationally start researching her? Like, like what was the yeah. form of the obsession? Seriously, yeah. I think this was how people knew me at the time, that my hobbies were like, I liked to write, I liked to watch movies with my boyfriend, and I liked to think about Tanya Harding. Like, that was an <laughs> element of my life. I would sit in my apartment and I would think about Tanya Harding, you know? Uh-huh. Just and... find a chair, sit down, look at the wall, yes. think about Tanya. Totally. Or just, I mean, I remember just kind of combing through, just trying to find everything anyone had written about her, like everything on YouTube where there was any footage of her at all. And just like, yeah, it was just a hobby. It was like how people have knitting. I had thinking about Tanya Harding. And I eventually started trying to place a piece and the trouble I ran into because I had tried to contact her through her website. I hadn't been able to when I was, you know, a 20 two 23-year-old baby writer, and I wasn't trained as a journalist at all. So I didn't feel like it was within my rights to like assertively try to talk to somebody. I was like, if you ask once and they say no, then like, that's it. You just move on. And so I was trying to, which don't do that, by the way. Like, if you're going (laughs) to write about somebody, this is what I know now. If you're going to write about somebody, like, they have a right to comment, like, you know, don't harass anybody, but like, you're you're doing them a favor by giving them a chance to to speak their truth about what you're saying about them. But at the time, you know, I remember trying to just sell to various outlets a like, let's reconsider Tanya Harding piece. And the note I always got was like, this is only publishable if you talk to her, if there's new information or if there's like a scoop. And I was like, no, 
I can't get that because I'm 22 and I'm scared. And also we don't need a scoop. <laughs> right. Because right. it's like the information is already there. And it's that this is clearly the story of a woman who who was visibly abused and belittled by her family, her husband, and her sport, and then eventually by the media, and whose greatest crime the entire time appears to have been being quote-unquote trashy, which is something that you were allowed to just, a word that you were allowed to unequivocally sling at a woman in 1994, and you wouldn't really get called out for that. So then you're learning about Tanya Harding. You have your hobby. You're thinking about her a lot. How does that become the show you're wrong about? Yeah. And so eventually I did find somebody who, well, they accepted it on spec. They were like, go write a piece and we'll see if we can publish it. And that was The Believer. Um, and I wrote it and they did publish it. And I was very lucky to get to, I mean, that really changed everything for me because, you know, the piece came out in uh, January 2014. So it also worked because part of the hook was that it was a 20 year anniversary piece. I realized that like sometimes you can squeeze through if there's an anniversary. That was the first thing that I'd written that any number of people greater than a few dozen ever read. And I, at some point after that came out, you know, that kind of helped me get started writing elsewhere. That really started my life as a freelancer. And at some point that year, I got a message on Tumblr from an anonymous account just saying that it was a great piece and they loved it. And I had no way to respond and always kind of remembered that. And then it turned out years later that that had been from a journalist named Michael Hobbs, who I started talking to in 2016 because he was working for HuffPo at the time and contacted me about pitching something to them, which wasn't, I kind of never put together an idea that made sense for that, but we kind of stayed in touch. And in early 2018, he emailed me about a podcast idea. And so we started making a podcast and uh, we did a demo in March of 2018. And it was you know, uh, yes, Tanya brought us together. And I think that really <laughs> explains what followed. And it's been a huge success and, and congratulations. And you're the, the solo host of it now. He's, mm -hmm. he's left the show. And it seems like it requires you to replicate that Tanya Harding interest on a constant series of new topics, which mm -hmm. sounds, you know, in, in one way, really rewarding. Like you get to go deep and, and learn a lot. And that that's a wonderful way to make a living. Mm -hmm. But have you found that interest to be replicable to new topics? Or do you have to approach other new topics in a different way? Mm. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? Like, on the one hand, yes, I get to keep chasing the tennis ball, which is what I love most in life. <laughs> but also, I think, I mean, I'm sure you think about this too. I feel like when you make something that comes out routinely and you are trying to protect the longevity of that and make something that, you know, is both coming out frequently and that you are able to like keep gas in the tank to keep doing for at least as long as you want to, then like there are things that you can't force. And I think one of the difficulties is I can't will myself into feeling passionate about something. I just have to like wait for the wave to come along and catch it. And, and lucky for me, there are a lot of waves. But, you know, one of the one of the things I think probably the main stylistic change that has come with me doing the show solo, aside from just the fact that that's what's happening and that Mike is no longer there, is that it's meant that it's changed from a show where I ideally am explaining a topic during half of the episodes 
now it's become one where I am able to bring in guests to tell me about things and sort of help, you know, converse and like mutually create meaning out of information and play that role. But also that I don't have to present on a topic until I feel ready to do that. So, you know, to me, kind of thinking about how to reshape the show, that was the main thing that I thought about first in terms of protecting my own longevity in it. Was it sort of redesigned or, or tweaked or adjusted based on your self-care, on, on your <laughs> burnout prevention? I mean, yeah, I didn't think to put it that way, but totally. Yeah, it is an act of self-care, I think. And that, you know, I... See, that's why you come to a mental health podcast host, because yeah. then I can, I can reframe that for you in terms of self-care. Yeah, and, you know, and then if you, as we all know, as we try to remind ourselves, if you're caring for yourself, then you can then care for people from the tabloids <laughs> and your family, <laughs> right. I guess. Put on your own mask before applying a mask to a Kardashian. <laughs> now, I personally don't really take a point of view that ADHD or ADD is overdiagnosed or underdiagnosed or that meds should or should not be prescribed. I lack that comprehensive knowledge about everybody's situation. But, mm -hmm. you know, I have to ask, as somebody who hosts You're Wrong About and yeah. has dealt with ADHD, are we wrong about ADHD? Oh, we must be, right? Because, I, I mean, to me, the secret at this point is that we're wrong about everything. We're always because wrong. everything is more complicated than we think. And, like, unless you're staring at something every day, thinking about it, then there's then you can be surprised by stuff. But many people can speak to this so much better than I can. But I do know that historically there has been an underdiagnosis of ADHD in girls because it tends to be seen as something I think that we have tended to look at the way it manifests in, in boys more often or we in the past associated it with like primarily hyperactivity or ways that it's inconvenient for adults to deal with as opposed to how it feels for the person or for the child. I don't know. I mean, the fact that I remain so conflicted and deal with so much that I beat myself up so much about things that like if I were more secure in understanding the diagnosis or if I could take that head understanding and make it a hard understanding that I could really understand like this is not your choice. Like this is just how your brain works and like you're doing your best and you can there are ways to make your life better and easier and you can work on that but yeah I think that probably the way that we're wrong about any diagnosis I would say comes down to the idea that we in American society as I know it tend to think about what is a diagnosis and then how do we help the diagnosed person in terms of like how do we make them the most functional cog they can be <laughs> and that seems wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, well, I would yeah. like to have a functioning country, but, it, you know, not not like that. How do we blunt all their divergent energies that go outside right. the norm? Yeah. I'm always interested in the D at the end of diagnosis. <laughs> ADHD, hmm. OCD, yeah. the, the disorder right. part. Because that's the part that, and I often point it out on the show because it was revelatory for me when I first found out that all that means, all the disorder means is it's interfering with the function of your life, how you'd like it to be functioning. So mm. it's not like a, you don't meet some chemical threshold. It doesn't show up on an x-ray and then you have the disorder as opposed to just being anxious or depressed. It just means the, the, the function of life. Mm. I often question that in regard to, you know, is it 
whose function, right? <laughs> like, is is right. it the, the function of the people around you or is it your function? And, and so does it need to be addressed and treated in order to be to be softened or managed better, which is very often the case? Or is it just you're kind of a pain in the ass to people who aren't very understanding? Yeah. And I think that, that, yes, that, gosh, this is, I knew this would be a clarifying conversation. <laughs> this reminds me of a conversation I had earlier today with um, a friend who lives in Philly who I hadn't caught up with in a while. And we had a really lovely talk. And I love Philadelphia. I've lived there a couple times. I have, you know, many of my dearest friends live there. It's just a, a city that it's like always had, just, it's always been special to me. And I kind of maybe put my finger on part of why today, finally, which is that, Philly feels like my house um, mm. where you're like, okay, we could destroy our lives trying to make everything like totally functional, clean, pave all the roads, you know, just like fix everything, have like a totally like clean countertops. Don't let the dishes pile up, wipe down the base. Like we could do that. Yeah. Or we could all give it 80% and agree that that's what we want and we're going to live <laughs> and that's what the house looks like. And it's a nice house and there's some clutter and there's some potholes and just deal with it. Yeah. And I, I love that. <laughs> it's very comforting to me. I feel home there. <laughs> it's it's going to be lived in a little bit, you know. Yeah. We'll clean so up Philadelphia if it's having a party or something. But other than that. <laughs> Just ahead, Sarah Marshall is heading for therapy. Will she be right about it? Or the other thing? Hey, were you a reader as a kid? Like maybe you read a lot of fantasy novels? Or horse girl books, we know how it is. But now you're an adult and you miss reading. You're so busy and you can't figure out how to get back into books. We're Reading Glasses and we're here to help. Yeah, we'll give you advice to figure out what books you love or learn to stop reading books you don't even like. We're really big proponents of dumping that book. Dump that book. But most importantly, we'll help you fall back in love with reading. Reading Glasses, every Thursday on Maximum Fun. Congratulations, you've won a ticket to attend an exclusive opportunity in a relaxing environment with two lovers. <laughs> wow. Well, this sounds like a sort of proposition of sorts, but really it's an ad for our podcast. Wonderful. It's a show we do here on Maximum Fun where we talk about things that we like and things that we're into. I'm Rachel McElroy, and you just heard Griffin McElroy, and we are excited for you to join us as we talk about movies and music and books. Things like sneezing or the idea of rain. <laughs> <laughs> can you get news or information you can use? Absolutely so. you cannot, because we're here to talk to you about pumpernickel bread. You can find new episodes on Wednesdays. So catch, catch the wave! Back with Sarah Marshall, host and co-creator of the podcast You're Wrong About. Do you still think of yourself as somebody with ADHD? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I very much do. Do you treat it? Do you try to do something about it? Or do you just... <sighs> I, I mean, I just started therapy for the first time in my adult life. So I feel like that has Ooh. opened a door that I'm going to keep sort of walking down hallways for... <laughs> probably focus on walking down a lot of hallways this year. So I feel like that's the start of that for me. I feel like the denial is strong in me and the masochism is strong in me and the belief that like 
if just give me another week and I'll finish this without help from anybody. Like, I know how ludicrous that is. I know that when other people say it, it's bad news. I still say it to myself every day. So I'm not medicated. And I think my next step is to try and figure out to try that out and try and find something that works for me and figure out just how to deal with that. I think one of the barriers, too, is that like if it's if executive function is a struggle, then like obtaining drugs, like the legal ones, is harder. Illegal ones too. You have to like text people oh, yeah. covertly, which is hard. And <laughs> I identify that way. I think I have the fear that like, and again, like I know this is bullshit, but I still feel it. I'm like, what if my brain gets taken away? What if I lose my individuality? What if I become the mom, the mom robot, the mombie that I felt like people wanted and what if I become a perfect sixth grader? I guess it's too late for that. I'm too old. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm here to tell you, Sarah Marshall, you're wrong about that. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not what's going to happen. Moreover, How the turntables. Yeah. Moreover, you are good. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I can understand that fear because it's it gets to the heart of how you're defining yourself. And, and you mm. wonder, like, where are the boundaries of it. If you're still feeling it in yourself today, how does it manifest today because you'd live a different life than you did when you're 11? Right. Which is, I mean, good, right? Yeah. Ideally, that's what you want. I think, I mean, it's also, you know, it's been funny in the past two years, I think, for everybody to try and be like, is this me? Is this me dealing with ADHD or depression or whatever? Or is this the fact that I'm living in a pandemic and it would be bizarre to be, you know, to be functional on on the scale that I used to attain sometimes. But I think it's like, to me, one of, I don't think that this is entirely ADHD, but I think it's part of it is just the feeling of being overwhelmed by everything all of the time. Like to the point of like, I'll get a text from someone I really love and I'll be like, ugh, this is terrible. Now I have to write a text back to someone I love. Uh Or the thing where like, you can do something like when it happens or it will never happen. And the problem is that if you can only do things when they're happening and if seven things are always happening at once, then like there will always be six things that are falling through a grate at your feet. But yeah, I think it's it's the feeling of like of not being able to stay on top of my life and therefore to not be able to enjoy it the way that I wish I could. Because like I know that great things are happening and I'm like I'm doing this job that I love and I'm building this show that I love and I'm working with people that I love and I have friends that I love and if I sort of am stuck feeling overwhelmed by everything to the point that I can't appreciate sort of this bounty around me I think that's what bothers me the most like I'm okay with losing my keys you know I know I'll find them eventually it's fine (laughs) can make duplicates just have them all over the house (laughs) I do have a lot of duplicate stuff yeah I would submit that it's very possible, and I don't know your situation, obviously, and I'm not a therapist, but I think it's very possible that as you go through therapy, there's going to be a lot that's similar to the work Mm. that you do on your show in that Hmm. you're going to find out what you've been wrong about about yourself in terms of where things come from, where things are rooted, the habits Mm. that you have now, you're going to figure out, oh, okay, that's because, you know, this and that got ingrained and then that became a pattern that I'm used to. And, you know, I always I always tell folks on this show and elsewhere that it's it's not about living in the past or blaming your mom or, you know, whatever whatever people think that it is. It's mm-hmm. just like figuring out how I got here, 
And what road yeah. am I on? And where is that road going to take me? And are turns possible <laughs> on this road? Yeah. And I, I think there's a whole set of research that may very well unfold as you go through. I'm really, I'm excited for that. I mean, according to The New Yorker, it's about being a dog lying on a chaise, but you know. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's Sarah Marshall. She is also the co-host of the podcast You Are Good, which is described as a feelings podcast about movies. She is not connected to the Kristen Bell, Jason Siegel movie Forgetting Sarah Marshall, and I figured she was sick of talking about it, so I didn't ask. More about Sarah at her website, RememberSarahMarshall.com. Oh, remember John, the guy I talked to in the intro who typed incredibly fast? Videos of him in action are on our show page. Go check that out. Well, we're joined once again by our friend Laura House. Hi, Laura. Hello. Laura House is the co-host of the Tiny Victories podcast on Maximum Fun, and she joins us for some meditation moments. And Laura, I was thinking about this. The thing I I like about meditation is that... Mm -hmm everybody's already like you have all the gear for it. You know, (laughs) you don't need to buy skis. You don't need to buy golf clubs. You just, it's such a good point. You've got your lungs and you've got your head and those are already alternately. You can, if you want, there's the pillows and the The candles and the the tape, you know, get a bunch of sound bowls, I guess, if you you need to, I mean, you can trick it out, but you can also like as is. Yep. Yeah, and you could, and it's portable. You can take your lungs with you everywhere you go. It's extremely portable. Yeah, you can you can toss it in a to go cup, and uh-huh. there it is. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's dive on in right now, if we could. Yeah. So, how wherever you can sit comfortably and safely with your eyes closed, so not driving, driving, pull over. <laughs> yeah. So just sit comfortably. Ideally, you want your back supported. Just close your eyes. Congratulate yourself on giving yourself a moment. And just notice your breath. You're not trying to change it or control it or make it better or anything. Just however it is, you just notice. And you'll have thoughts that's normal, natural for your brain to make thoughts. And your attention will go into your thoughts. And when you become aware of that, you just... Notice your breath again. Just letting go. Go ahead and open your eyes. Do, do you find, I find this, like when we stop like this and notice our breath, there's a drop down, like a letting go. And then there's also this heightened awareness of yes. other things. Yeah. It's almost like you've traveled somewhere else. You've traveled into a different room. 
Yeah, isn't that weird? It's I'm staying at an Airbnb and this clock is so loud <laughs> and I have not noticed it one time. Oh, that's beautiful. And, and then I do this and I'm like, oh my God. So those are the thoughts that my brain makes is like, oh, that clock is insane. How, how do I sleep? <laughs> how do I stop And the- like a plane went overhead, but I'm like, mm-hmm. breath, breath. But you are aware of, I think sometimes with meditation, people feel like you're just supposed to be blank. Like you're just supposed to be blank and feel amazing. And it's like, no, no, you're going to you're yeah. in a garbage truck and, you know. Yeah, you're in the world. You know, you can't, you don't go off to Mars or, or anything. I always notice that if I can, if I can notice my breath, my shoulders start to oh, relax. And then yeah. I start to, you know, and then I realize, oh, there's all these things that I had blocked out just from shoulder tension. Because that's where oh. I carry a lot of tension. And, uh, and it really kind of, you know, it opens up so many things. It's wonderful. It, it does. I will sometimes notice that my feet are making a fist. Oh, not a good sign. <laughs> not a good sign. I'll be like, what are my, who are my feet going to go fight? What are, I'll yeah. just, yeah. And then you just, oh, that's right. And Unless you're in a martial arts tournament, it's a bad sign. It's not great. It's not great. <laughs> well, Laura, thank you for the break. Thank you for the, uh, the little respite from the daily struggles. Thanks. Of course. Thank you. Next time on Depression Mode, we first covered the topic of burnout on our show a year ago, and we have an update, and it's gotten so much worse. This recent survey looked at around 30,000 people, and what they found was around 41% were planning to leave their job in the next three months. They're not just going to another job. We've been saying the great reshuffle. I've been hearing people just say straight up, leaving my career, leaving my industry. They've hit the wall. The mental health epidemic of burnout. If people support our show through a small donation, we can keep being here. If not, this all goes away Poof. If you donate already, you make Depression Mode happen, and we thank you. If you haven't donated yet, it's easy. Find a level that works for you at MaximumFun.org join. Be sure to hit subscribe on Depression Mode. Give us five stars. Write reviews. That way more people find out about the show, which helps our mission of facilitating open conversations about mental health. You can buy my book. I wrote a book. It's called The Hilarious World of Depression. I, um, that's available where books are sold on account of it's a book. I want you to know that the Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7 for free at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line is free and available. Text the word HOME to 741741. Our electric mail address is depressionmode at MaximumFun.org. We want to hear from you with your thoughts, suggestions, comments. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. We're on Twitter and Instagram at DepressPod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is available on Substack. Search that up. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hello, Credits listeners. Our annual Max Fun Drive is just around the corner. The theme this year, kickboxing. No, there is no Got some great shows for Max Fun Drive this year, though, including a special donor episode that is amazing and absolutely, unimaginably enormous. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings. I'm always falling off of cliffs now.
building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building wings No one knows the reason Maybe there's no reason I just keep believing No one knows the answer Maybe there's no answer I just keep on dancing This is Elizabeth from Monterey, California, here to remind you that we love you. We want you to be here, and it's okay to ask for help in order to stay here. Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.